0: For downloading the podcast and for choosing to take part in the conversation today, I'm Deanna Fletcher, and if you haven't already, please do hit subscribe right now so you don't ever miss out on Hide of Heart episodes to come. My guest today is a New York Times best-selling author of over 35 titles, including The Mark of the Lion series, The Sin Eater, which was made into a feature film and distributed by Fox Faith, and not forgetting, probably her most famous title, Redeeming Love. Francine Rivers has returned to her romance roots with a new story about love and redemption in the masterpiece. Today, it's my absolute privilege to speak with one of, if not the most notable Christian fiction novelist of our time, about the art of writing and what we can learn from her life experiences. So why don't we start with your latest publication. Let's just jump straight in and talk about the new book. Give me a bit of an idea of the premise and the inspiration behind it.
1: Uh, the premise is really, the, the bottom line is it's about how God can take, you know, anybody's life, no matter how messy, and turn it into a masterpiece. And the, the main characters, Roman and Grace, both come from very traumatic childhood events Uh, And it impacts the way they think as adults. So it's how God works in their lives and how things are turned around and also how how far people have to fall before they cry out to God.
0: Now, you started as a romance novelist. Some people thinking that may not be able to link it together with what you've just described. It's a very kind of spirit-led project, but actually you started as a romance novelist. How did you get into that, and, and what was your kind of early work like, do you think?
1: Well, the, er- the early work I would call steamy historical romances, and they're basically a man-woman relationship. When I became a Christian, uh, I couldn't write for about three years. And I felt later on that it was really God saying, well, you say you want to be my child, but you don't even know who I am. And I started reading the Bible, and we had a home Bible study, and the pastor was teaching the minor prophets. And we came to the story of Hosea, and that just blew my mind. I mean, it, it changed my whole way of thinking about how deep God's love is, and that ended up being the basis for redeeming love. Because I'd been th- in the general market, I'd been writing stories that were kind of based in California between the 1840s and the 1880s. So I set Redeeming Love in Gold Rush, California, uh, to reach the same people that had been following my career to show them, here's the difference. You know, I've been writing about love, but this is the real thing, the kind of love that God has for us. And it's lived out by the character of Michael in the story. just changed the whole course of my writing, because after that I thought... You know, I had a lot, I became a Christian later in life. I was like um, late in my 30s. And I had a lot of questions about faith and how to walk, you know, how to walk the faith walk. And I just, I thought that I should just take the questions to God. And my way of working through them was to create stories and the different characters uh, live out different answers to that question. And then there would be one strong Christian that is relying on God, and I'd be studying scripture every day to try to find out what's God's perspective on this particular
0: issue. How did you come to faith?
1: Uh, A little boy next door came and invited us to church. He was eight years old. Rick and I were having real uh, problems in our marriage at the time, and we'd moved to Northern California. I was raised in the church, but a lot of times you have head knowledge, but you don't have heart knowledge. And the church that I grew up in, they were very politically active, but they weren't really teaching Scripture. Um, And the church that I was invited to, uh, when we moved to Sebastopol, they they basically would start, you know, in the beginning of a book, take Ephesians, and they'd start at chapter 1, verse 1. They'd be teaching the historical context, what the Scripture's saying, and what does it have to do with our lives today. And that just opened my heart up to God.
0: Why do you think, in your younger years, I mean you've touched on it a little bit there, but why do you think you didn't stay with the church or with the Christian faith, having grown up in church, why leave?
1: Well, I saw a lot of hypocrisy in the congregation that i that I went to as a child, you know I saw a lot of adults squabbling over things that just didn't seem that important, and so when I left and went away to college, I just didn't go back to church, but I think there were enough seeds planted there that later on. Rick and I tried different churches, but they, um, they were not really teaching Scripture. So this, this church was very different from my experience. And I think as a younger person, too, I'd been raised with the idea that, you know, you go after what you want and you be self-reliant. You know, you, you work hard enough, you can gain anything you want. Um, so it was very self-centered. You know, work hard and achieve whatever you wanted to achieve you know no matter how successful people become it it doesn't fill up the emptiness that we are we have inside of us because i think that we're all seeking god we're looking for god and we don't even know it sometimes we're trying to fill that emptiness in us in a lot of different ways
0: I think your story there is so relatable, though, um, to so many people. It doesn't matter if it was the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. One thing that doesn't tend to change is that even if you do grow up in church or you have some experience, I mean, I'm a pastor's kid myself, and there has been that struggle of there seems to be so much stuff that goes on within the community that people get hung up on that just isn't important in the grand scheme of things. Um, What would you say to people who are perhaps feeling that way, um, but would you encourage them to to maybe not throw in the towel, to hang it out. Um, Why bother when people keep squabbling over silly things, as you say?
1: Well, I think, too, that, you know, when I was younger, I was looking around at what was happening around me. And we need to look up. You know, when when you're looking at who to follow, look at Jesus. Go into the scriptures and read about Him. Because that's who we're there to worship. We're not there to be looking at other people and, and following after other people. And I think that's um, what a lot of people tend to do, is they go into a church and they expect in a Christian church that all the Christians are going to be perfect, and none of us are. I mean, we're all sinners. So if you're expecting to find perfection, um, you know, we're not perfect. You know, I'm certainly not perfect. I had to learn that, you know, get my eyes off off mankind and look at God and follow God.
0: Thank you. That's great advice. Um, getting back to Redeeming Love, I mean, when you released that in 1991, that is still probably the title of yours that we're still talking about today. It's, it's impacted so many people. Strangely, not been made into a film yet, as far as I know. I think it should be.
1: Uh, we're working on it. Actually, that's what I'm doing right now. I'd, re- I'd, I'd seen scripts. We've had various deals over the years and options, but nothing has really come of it. And the company that I'm hoping to work with now, um, I just decided, you know, I need to write the script myself. So I wrote the script, and they liked it. Um, they, do, they do like it. We're kind of in negotiations, but there are some things that need to be uh, revised. Because, you know, when you go into a movie theater, I don't think people want to see as the first scene an 8-year-old child being raped by a grown man. So there have to be some changes in how it's laid out and have the information about her past life be more dropped in as flashbacks. So, but there is the possibility now of there being a film. We're closer to having one made now than we've ever been before.
0: What's the journey like as the author of the book to then adapt your own novel to a screenplay for the theatre for the silver screen? Uh, what's that process been like for you? How's it different?
1: Well, it's it's different kind of writing. It's been kind of fun. Uh, I've had to do a lot of studying on script writing, and I, I love movies anyway. I love to, to watch movies. Um, but I'd rather that I was the one doing the revisions because I want to keep the story intact. And I think a, a lot of people don't get Michael. They don't understand that Michael is really very much like Jesus. It's an allegory, really, about God's love for each of us. And we're all, in a sense, like angel, and God wooves us. So I want to keep that in there and the only way to do it is to write it myself. <laughs> yeah. Well
0: that's super exciting. Cannot wait. I mean, can you can you tell me anything about how big the budget will be or when you think it's going to be made? Do you know anything that you can share with me? I
1: really don't know. I think the 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 hope is that they'd be going into production in the next year or two, but um I have been down this road before, so yeah. you know I, I'm not counting on anything until I see it on the screen. <laughs> That's just the way Hollywood is, but a lot of it will be how much control I have over the script and, and who is going to be trying to make changes in the final draft, because you have to have... Some say all the way through because you can also lose that on the editing floor. A lot of things can happen in the final stages of making a movie. So we have to get that all ironed out first.
0: Yes, get yourself the executive producer, role, sign off, credit, and then <laughs> you might be yeah. all right.
1: Um, and that's very hard to do because as yeah. they say, the ones that have the money have the final say. You know, And of course, I'm not the one that's financing the movie. So we have to find somebody that has the same heart, has the same mindset.
0: Yeah, well, hopefully you do, because this is a book that is well known to a lot of, a lot of people of faith and none around the world. Um, you mean, you've called Redeeming Love your statement of faith. Why is that?
1: Because I felt like Angel when I read the story of Hosea. I felt like I had been turning to other things my entire life. And it, it, you don't have to be a prostitute selling yourself to, you know, to men to be like a harlot, because I think we tend to create idols in our lives. You know, the self-reliance, in a sense, is an idol, you know, thinking that I can, can manage my own life. Um, but people turn to all kinds of things. They can, they can worship their careers. They can worship their family. They can, you know, worship entertainment, uh, whatever it is. But I felt like I, God was my last resort. He was the one that I cried out to when I was desperate and falling rather than walking with him every single day of my life. And that's the journey that, that um, Angel is on, is to to lay down all the things that have happened to her and walk hand in hand with Michael.
0: And it's across age range. Story as well. I mean, it's set as a period drama, but I feel like if you're a teen now, if you're a 20 something now, or you read it, or maybe you read it when it first came out, you know, um, 20 years ago, um, I feel like the story of that young woman in some capacity, in some way, it can speak to you and um, you can identify it regardless of your age, would you say? I think so,
1: because I think we all have that struggle that, you know, we are raised in, in many cultures to believe that we are the ones that are to run our lives and to um, to rely on ourselves and our own resources. And then we when we learn that we can, it's sort of a paradox. You know, by surrendering, you actually become free. Becoming a slave to Christ, you actually are more free than you've ever been in any other way in your life. And then he also has a plan, and he can use all the the bad stuff in your life. He can turn that around, and he can make it, for his glory, which is part of the story of the masterpiece of how all the bad things that have happened and all the mistakes that people make, it can still be turned around and turned into something that is uh, of very good purpose when we give it to God. And it's it's miraculous how he does that. I've seen it in so many lives, and especially I've been more involved in uh, trying to fight sex trafficking, and you see... Uh, women that have been are survivors, and their lives have just been shattered, and yet when they turn to Christ, they become just these lights of hope to others.
0: There's such an exploitation, of course, as we know, of sex, of the thought of sex, the hope of love and intimacy. Um, As somebody who started out as a romance novelist in the 70s and then in 91 to release Redeeming Love and to really have a conviction of what your work should then be like moving forward, um, I found it really interesting to learn that you then went attempted, if not succeeded, in purchasing the publication rights to your earlier novels, the ones that you wrote before you were a Christian, so that you could stop them being released again, so to stop them being able to be bought or republished. Why was that so important to you?
1: Well, because I felt like that was the BC uh, message, that it was very limited, you know, It was strictly focused on the romantic relationship between a man and a woman and some explicit scenes, and I felt like it's the wrong message because when you, know, when you have a triangle, a love triangle, but God is at the very top, it's a whole different dynamic to a relationship. So I didn't want people reading old books and, and getting confused in the message, so I got the rights back as soon as I could. We, hit, we did have one that came out again as a mistake, and they were publishing it as a new release so we had to get I got an attorney and we went after them and just said you can't do that that there's still books out there you know people bought the books years ago i think there were like 4 million or something in circulation so i usually tell people look at look at what the copyright date is and don't don't read anything before redeeming love came out and the the original version came out in the general market i think in 91 and then i was able to get the rights back to that one also And I was able to do uh, editing because I couldn't have the the conversion scene in the original. The general market publisher didn't want a gospel message in a a general market publication. You actually have a lot more censorship than you realize. Um, I've actually been freer to deal with heavier-duty subject matter in the Christian market than I did in the general market because you get locked into we want the same kind of steamy historical romance from you. We don't want anything that's got a message in it.
0: Nothing that makes people think. Right. Which is kind of bizarre because, obviously, like you mentioned, romance novels, they are generally quite explicit. So here's a question. Do you think Christians, and this isn't to condemn anyone, but do you think Christians should read... Is it okay for, them, for people of faith to read romantic novels? For women particularly, um, it's kind of the female version of pornography sometimes. Yes, it is. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I think, well, it depends on the romance because romance it covers a lot of territory. You can look at uh, Jane Eyre as a romance. You know, and Emma and a lot of Jane Austen's work, those are, those are romances, so it depends. I mean, what I've noticed over the years is the books have become more and more explicit because when you're looking at the physical aspects, it, it, it's, it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't fulfill a person. So as the years go by, the books have become more and more explicit to the point of now they are pornographic, in my opinion. So obviously there's a hunger there that can never be filled but when you look at the love of God and God in a relationship with a man and a woman in a marriage, it's a whole, whole nother
0: story. So, do you think it's okay to read those sorts of books if you're a Christian? The explicit I ones? I
1: would, well, I don't. I, and I would hope others would be very careful about what they read because you don't want to read things that are going to be stirring up temptation or stirring up discontent especially, you know, if you're married, you know, and you're reading these books and you expect your husband to behave exactly like the hero in the piece. Uh, I think of, uh, well, I'm not going to mention any specific books, but there are some books that have sold millions and millions of copies, but I don't think they, I don't think they feed the best in us. And I think we need to be very careful um, in how we live our lives.
0: You mentioned earlier that when you and your husband. I'm guessing as well, first became Christians, um, that you weren't having a very good time in your marriage, that things were a bit rough. What helped you um, get your marriage back on track?
1: Well, uh, I couldn't get Rick to go to church with me, so I asked the pastor if he would be willing to teach a home Bible study, and he said, sure, if Rick would agree, and Rick, of course, said yes. So that home Bible study is still going on, and Rick and I have been married. We're going on our 49th year. And it was when we, both, we were both baptized on the same day in May of 1986, and that changed everything. I mean, we've grown closer and closer over the years. I think when you have God in the center of your relationship, it's going to become stronger and more beautiful. I mean, we're, we're best friends as well as lovers. You know, it's, it's really enriched our relationship.
0: As an author, somebody who's so um, accomplished in your craft, you have published many books. (laughs) I don't know how you keep coming up with ideas, but you have published many books. um, And you have such a lengthy and ostentatious career. I mean, you've been um, made a member of the Romance Writers of America Hall of Fame. Um, I'd love to know, what have you learned about how God directs your work as an author, or how can we learn to hear from the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day uh, work life, regardless of the, what that may be? How has God led you in your, in your work and in your writing?
1: Well, I know, you know, when I have questions now, I go into Scripture, and it's amazing how when you have a specific thought in your mind, a specific question that you're dealing with, that God will speak to you through Scripture. And also I find that, you know, if I, that one question where I'm taking it everywhere, it's like God speaks to you through other people. He speaks to you through situations. He speaks to you through creation. It's when you open yourself up to hear him that you begin to really hear him. It's not an audible voice, but there are moments of enlightenment. Oh, that's what he means. And a scripture will just pop out. I've read through the Bible, you know, many years, you know, over and over again. But you can read it, and it's new every time you read it. Because you go in needing specific answers. And new scriptures, the scriptures just, just seem to be new, and they pop out. That's what I do with my writing, is I start, you know, each book is basically started with a question. And then I just start reading and looking for his perspective and looking for his answers. And they... Come up. It sometimes takes me an entire year or two years to figure out what he's trying to teach me. Wow! But when you're open to it, he does. He's faithful in that. He just he's faithful to teach you when you want to. When you want to know, he will teach you.
0: I mean, I don't want to ask you what your favorite book is that you've written, obviously, but I can imagine that some of your works. Might have sentimental value that's greater than others, or particularly if you learnt a lot. Sometimes, if you're researching a book, you know, you're researching the storyline or, you know, whatever is involved, you know, an author will research. And for you, it sounds like you really go to scripture and you ask God as a part of that process. So, have any of these moments throughout your career um, impacted you? Really heavily, where God's really spoken to you through your own work, because I just love the fact that sometimes we're going about doing day to day life, whatever sphere of influence you might work in, whether it's business or it's arts or it's literally sitting in an office or working in finance, and God can teach us through our work what He wants to teach us.
1: well, I know that you know the book that meant the most to me was redeeming love because it changed my whole way of looking at at my writing. But the book that was the hardest for me to write but the most healing was The Atonement Child because it dealt with, you know, I, the, the issue I was struggling with is I had had an abortion during my college years, and you have all that guilt that you're carrying with you. And I also had miscarriages. When when Rick and I married, he wasn't a part of my life at that time, but when we got married, I had miscarriages, so that increased the guilt. So I took that question, you know, is there, is there forgiveness for somebody who's had an abortion? And took that. Uh, to God and spent that whole year, and it was a really tough year um, of writing. But at the end of it, um, I felt real healing, and I think Rick did too, because I had gone through while I was writing the book. I was going through a post-traumatic, um, you know, abortion class at the local pregnancy counseling center, and it just it helped me go before God with a group of women. And then when we were done with that, then Rick went into counseling because he had to deal with all the aftermath, the emotions that, you know, are stirred up and all the stuff that goes on with with women who have had abortions. So he had to deal with that. And a lot of the things that we were, I think he was more afraid of because he was worried of what people would do to me when they found out, you know, if the Christian... Uh, audience would be really upset, or and it, and of course it was very pro-life. So are the pro-lifers going to be you know after me? And it's like God just paved the way, all the way through. And I felt tremendous healing at the end of that book. So that book really uh, was very important to my life, and and also solved a lot of problems between me and Rick.
0: Wow, I mean the pro-life argument or conversation is a strong one. Um, but the other strong voice is a woman's right to choose. And I think yeah. in this day and age, um, more than ever, abortion is legal where I live and has been for a very long time. It's legal in a lot of countries. So it's, it's easy to get access to safe, what some people just would just call healthcare, you know, if you choose to abort yeah. a child. But what we don't necessarily talk about, I don't think enough, is the guilt that women may not even expect to carry, they don't think going into it that the guilt yeah. is going to affect them. Um, I think you've touched on something through your work in this book, but even in this conversation that affects a lot of women today, and it has a knock-on effect on their partners. So how did, how did you work through and find freedom to this issue in your life?
1: Well, just finding out that no matter what we do, you know, God loves us and He forgives us. And when we turn to Him, we, we receive healing. And a lot of it, too, is, is laying things down, you know, actually putting it at the cross and allowing God to bring the healing and not clinging to it, you know, holding on to it. And I think a lot of times, you know, in the healthcare systems, and I, I don't know what it's like in, in uh, the U.K., but here a lot of times it's like, well, there's, you know, what's your problem? It's legal. Mm-hmm. It's okay. You didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And yet your soul, in your soul, you know you have. And you you feel that sense of loss. I've talked to so many women who have had abortions, and, and they feel that emptiness and that sense of loss. And then when it really struck me is when I had a child that I wanted. And I thought, you know, the moment of conception, I was excited about that child, and I wanted that child, and it was a child. But the previous child that I aborted, I didn't look at it as a child. It was just material. So it's, you instinctively know the truth of what you're doing, that you are taking human life, and you do suffer from that. No matter how legal it is or, or how our culture tells us it's fine, we do suffer when we do it um, because we, we know it's life.
0: Yeah. So knowing what you know now, what advice would you have for your 20-something self?
1: Trust in God, trust in God, no matter what comes against you and walk in his ways because he'll, he will, um, he will keep you from doing things that will harm you and hurt you for years to come.
0: That is great advice. And I think I'm going to let you go because there's nothing else I need to ask you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, obviously the new book is out now let me ask you briefly what are you hoping that apart from pure enjoyment um, what are you hoping that (laughs) readers will take away from the new book
1: I am hoping people will take away from it that no matter what they've been through God is in the business of making them into a masterpiece that he can change people from the inside out and their lives can just shine
0: wonderful thank you so much I really appreciate your time thank you My thanks to Francine Rivers for speaking with us today. Her book, The Masterpiece, is available now from Tyndale House and wherever really good books are sold. There's more soon, so check back with us later for another conversation and be sure to subscribe to the Height of Heart podcast so you don't miss any updates. Be sure to check in with us on Instagram and wherever else you most like to social. And until next time, thanks for listening.